Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. As you've probably surmised, today's topic is more gardening adjacent, but with so much interest in the past couple of years in backyard livestock, we're betting many of you have animals or want animals for your yards and homesteads. I wouldn't call this episode a how-to guide to raising backyard livestock or anything like that, so don't expect this to be the A's, B's, and C's of everything you need to know to raise animals. But nonetheless, I think you'll find it really interesting and learn a lot, perhaps even motivated to learn more. I know I was. Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, joined by horticulturist and UNH Extension Field Specialist Emma Erler. Salutations, everyone. And Elena Enzian, Dairy, Livestock, and Forage Crops Field Specialist, also for UNH Extension. Howdy, y'all. So, Elena, what does that mean? What do you do? Hey, so yeah, I basically am um, a livestock field specialist. So we've got the dairy livestock and forage crop team and I'm the the livestock part of that team. And um, mostly what I do is I'm going out to commercial farms around the state or folks that are interested in starting livestock production, um, doing site visits, helping them with their goals, achieve their goals, um, and also putting on programs and providing education for folks that want to know about livestock. Awesome. Well, today that includes Emma and I, and hopefully folks listening as well. Um, I want to actually ask you, Emma, what do you see as the relationship potentially between livestock and gardening and landscaping? And then I'll see what Elena thinks about that as well. Wow, that's a great question. So I, I think part of it, for some people, they get real involved with homesteading, I guess I would call it where you're trying to grow a lot of your own food. And for me, that often, I first thing I think of is often vegetable plants or fruits, but that can mean livestock as well, uh, whether you're growing or producing animals for meat or whether you just have a few chickens for eggs, uh, maybe even are, are trying to produce some of your own dairy. Uh, so it can fit together. I think for some people too, it's just can even be an aesthetic thing. You like having, let's say, chickens wandering around your garden. So they become pets to a certain extent uh, and maybe have more of a, a functional role in the landscape as well. And Elena might speak to this a little bit too. I know some people get excited about poultry in particular for tick management. Now, I don't know how well uh, poultry actually manages ticks around the garden and landscape, but that's something people have in mind when they bring them to their properties. Yeah, totally. Um, I I love everything that you just said, Emma, as far as like livestock and gardening and where do these two worlds come together, um, especially when we're speaking to a homesteading audience. And I think there's a lot of really neat opportunities to layer livestock systems with gardening systems. I mean, you've got nutrients that come from the livestock that can be really beneficial for your gardens. Um, like you said, tick management. Well, you know, chickens do a pretty decent job of managing ticks. You might have even better luck with guinea fowl or um, some some species like that. Um, but it's certainly nice to, to have them around. And I think the aesthetic piece is a, a very real thing for sure. Um, and, you know, they certainly provide a lot of services 
in the landscape as well as far as you know if you have larger pieces of land with you know maybe a good chunk of pasture land uh, doing some managed grazing can do a lot for your soil health and uh, water infiltration and um, really sequestering carbon back into the soil so there's a lot of cool opportunities to play around with that stuff even at a really small scale that just made me think of people using goats or sheep for managing invasive plants too Totally. Yes, that's a really great point. You, you, you see that a lot in backyard sort of homestead scales too. It's a great way to manage some poison ivy or bittersweet. Even cattle, they'll go to town on bittersweet. Um, if you just stick them in an area with it, they'll clear your fence line and um, you can teach livestock to eat weeds if they're not already eating them. So there's a lot of cool ways to, again, layer them into your existing system. Sorry, you can teach livestock to eat weeds. How do you do that? Yeah, so Kathy Voth, she's kind of, she's done a lot of research and written a lot of stuff about live like I think she wrote a article called Cows Eat Weeds. And um essentially, yeah, you can teach livestock to eat weeds and you know, at a at a larger scale if you have cattle that you're, you know, brood cows that you're keeping around and you're breeding them, so you can teach those mama cows by introducing different weed species with some food that they like and sort of gradually wean them off. Say you throw it in with some grain or molasses, so you add less and less grain and molasses every time and more of the weed you want them to eat, and they start to get accustomed to it. And there's a lot of like good nutrients in some of those weeds too for these animals. Um, like Some of them are really high in protein, um, eventually they'll learn, you know, oh, this is a really good food for me. And they'll go and find it out in the field themselves. And then the really cool thing is that they will then, if they're your mom cows, so you're keeping them around year after year, they'll teach their offspring to do the same thing because their kids, their calves, whatever, you know, if it's sheep, if it's goats, um, they learn what to eat and what is safe to eat from their mothers. So, you know, it's pretty cool. I, I love, I thought it was fascinating when I learned about it and heard Kathy speak about it. Elena, what animals would you say you're most passionate and excited about as backyard livestock? Yeah, so my personal passion um, in terms of livestock in general, I you know, grew up with cattle, um, and actually working at a horse farm, but they also had cattle. Um, so we got to play around with the cows on horseback and I got to learn about low stress handling. So cows will always have a very special place in my heart, especially going to UNH and, um, you know, doing the cream program there, working with the dairy cows. But, um, we've also, you know, at the farm where I grew up working, we had, um, pigs on a small scale. We did chickens. Um, I'll raise meat birds. Not this year because I'm just far too busy, but generally um, we like to do a batch of meat birds for our own personal consumption every year. So um, those are probably the ones that I'm most passionate about um, on a personal level and professionally too. This is a really general question, but do you think that people may assume that some of these animals just aren't really realistic for them when in fact maybe they could be? Do you think there might be a disconnect between the amount of land, for example, that someone thinks they need to have cattle versus how much land you really do? Or do you really need a good chunk? 
Yeah, with cattle in particular, well, as first with the disconnect piece, you know, I think sometimes, you know, having livestock, a lot of folks, you know, it is a huge responsibility. And so rightfully so, it's natural to kind of be like, oh gosh, I just, I'm not set up for it and I don't have the capacity for it right now, which that's definitely a fair assessment. Um, and But on the other side with cattle, you know, you do need, the general rule of thumb is 1,000 animal units for every two acres. And so 1,000 animal units is maybe one horse or whatever makes up 1,000 pounds of animals. So it might be a cow and her calf, or you might have two 500-pound steers that you're raising. So if you have a couple acres, you can typically sustain that, but then it depends on what kind of shape is that acreage in. Is it all like just soil, weeds, invasive land is it woodland that's going to kind of dictate what you can do with it and how much that that land can sustain if you know what I mean so yes and no I guess um you know I chickens though certainly are one of those easy we call them the gateway livestock species because you don't need a lot of acreage for them and they can really integrate quite well into your existing gardening systems Um, And probably the next one up from that, um, I would have to say, is either maybe goats or sheep. Um, And then some people are really interested in bringing pigs into the land, too, because of the idea that they can really till up the ground and sort of clear, help clear land for you. But you definitely have to be careful there as well, um, just because they can start to be a little bit more on the destructive side. Well, I could see how all of those animals could be destructive, potentially, even chickens, right? Chickens trampling through your garden, maybe pecking at things you don't want them to peck at. There's this idea that they're just out there eating like bad bugs and, you know, dropping dropping manure for you in all the right places. But imagine you need to manage them a little bit, not to mention you want to keep an eye on your chickens just to make sure that they stay nice and healthy and aren't in the belly of a predator. You know, it's not always... Um just get the chickens and and let them go with any livestock species. It just, it comes down to good management. Um, you know, in terms of pasture quality, if you set animals out and you know, you don't rotate them and you just have a set stock system, which means you're just raising animals in one paddock 24 seven, there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people do that, but You know, don't be surprised when your little paddock that used to be green maybe a few years later turns into a dirt lot. And actually, chickens can do that within a season. I We had laying hens, um, and we weren't rotating them. We just had them fenced into an area with their coop. And, I mean, half the summer was gone, and it was completely torn up. So um, every now and then they'd get out, and they'd get into the gardens, and those those little claws, those little talons, they sure do a number in the garden every now and then if they if they can get to it they might eat some of your nice tomatoes um, that are ripening up but yeah it's it's really true Nate what you said any kind of livestock species you have to have some kind of management in order to depending on what your goals are and in order to maintain whatever landscape picturesque um you know, system you're looking for. 
Emma, a while back, we had a conversation with Becky Seidman about, among other things, using compost and manure in the garden and landscape. I was wondering if you could maybe bring us back to that conversation and bring some of the highlights of how to use manure and how not to use manure, and then maybe we can have more of a conversation with Elena about it. Manure can certainly be a wonderful amendment for soil. It's rich in organic matter, rich in a lot of nutrients. Uh, a lot of people use it uh, exclusively in their gardens because they have an easy, readily, excuse me, they have an easy, readily available source. If you have chickens, if you have goats or cattle, uh, you're going to have plenty of manure to use, uh, and it is it is you know, a, a good source of organic matter. The only real downside I can see to using manure in their garden, well, there's a couple, but the first is that it, it's really high in phosphorus. And most soils in New Hampshire already have plenty of phosphorus in them. And phosphorus can be a real concern when we're talking about water quality, freshwater quality in particular. Uh, phosphorus is a limiting nutrient um, and it can cause major algae blooms when it runs off in um, off of the landscape into water bodies. So it's something we think about, um, particularly if you're if you live near you know lake, stream, uh, pond. By the same token, you're also wanting to pay attention to your nitrogen loading of the soil as well. Not so much concerned about that with manure, but we're always thinking about nutrients and where they're going, um, whether they're actually going to get used by plants where we're putting. Uh, the nutrient down. Compost too can be problematic if you're using fresh raw compost that hasn't had time to age or break down at all around vegetable plants in particular, things that you're going to be trying to, to consume. There is potential for there to be bacteria or other pathogens in that manure that could cause you to become ill. Um, this happens all the time, even in commercial agriculture, when there are big recalls of, say, lettuce or, or other produce. And this can happen potentially in your backyard garden, too. So if you are looking to use manure in the landscape, particularly in your vegetable garden, you're going to want to let it age for a while. I think probably at least six months before you're planning to harvest a crop from your garden. Um, and the longer, the better. Why don't we talk about manure management for a little bit then? So what do you do with fresh manure, like logistically in the garden and landscape? How are you aging the stuff? And then how are you literally using it? What is it for? And how do you incorporate it into your soil? Uh, sure, I'll take that one. So in terms of aging it, I think probably the easiest approach for most people is just to have it sitting in a pile. And you're going to have multiple piles that are in various stages of decomposition. Something that's going to speed up or slow down the process is going to be how well aerated that pile is. So if you are collecting a, a whole bunch of manure that's... Um, you know, very wet or heavy, um, mixed with maybe not a whole lot of bedding. There's not going to be a whole lot of oxygen getting to the middle of that pile, particularly if it's very large. And decomposition happens very slowly without the presence of oxygen. If there is a fair amount of, of bedding mixed in, let's say something like, like hay or straw that's going to allow a little bit more oxygen in, that's going to be helpful. If you're actively turning that pile, that's better still. 
So if you have, let's say, a, a tractor with a bucket, if we're talking very large scale, a front end loader or something, or even on a small scale, just uh, getting out there with a, a pitchfork or another compost turning tool is going to help oxygenate that pile, get it breaking down faster so that you're not putting raw manure on your garden. Um, really, the ideal if you're going to be using manure in your beds is that you don't want to be seeing a lot of recognizable pieces in there. You don't want to be seeing bedding that still looks the same as when you put it in that pile. And you definitely don't want to be able to see whole droppings uh, that, that tell you that that pile hasn't broken down enough. So just to add on to that, some considerations for getting the manure to that point um, you know, when you, you have livestock in your, in your homestead or in your system, um, some things to think about is how much manure those species are going to be producing a year, a month. And then do you have the ability, space, capacity to store that for a period of time without causing any environmental issues that Emma mentioned before, like runoff, um, you know, rainfall, do you have it under cover? Is that necessary? Um, so thinking about some of those things, in addition, you know, um, most livestock, you, you're probably going to have some kind of housing system for them. So how are you going to go in and clean that out? Is it just going to be by hand? Are you going to have a bit of a larger system where you might need some equipment to get in there? Um, interestingly, and I'll use chickens as the example since, you know, it's a little bit more common on a smaller scale. Um, they don't necessarily need their coops cleaned every single day. Um, like say if you had a horse farm and you had your horses in, you'd be picking manure every day, cleaning those stalls out with chickens, um, in their coop, you can kind of use like a bedded pack system is kind of what we call it. And so, um, as the soil, as the shavings get soiled and full of manure, um, you might go in, pick the wet spots and then just a layer more on top of it. And, you know, some larger, like, cattle farms, sheep, they'll do this at a, a, at a large scale and actually um, turn the bedded systems and sort of kind of almost compost it in there um, to incorporate that manure, break it down, and it's actually still very safe for those uh, critters and um, you can scrape it off and spread it on your fields or row crops or whatever once it's been broken down properly. So that's another um, thing to think about, just these different systems for managing manure before it gets to the point of, say, composting it or storing it or whatever. Um, there's also opportunities, like if you don't have a way to uh, store manure, you don't, you just don't have the space for it, which is very, you know, that's a real problem people have and happens. Um, there are companies, you know, that do manure removal. I believe the Department of Ag has a list of folks that you can either buy manure from, buy, buy compost from, obviously, um, which is an, another level of, um, you know, production, but there's also folks that will come and pick up your manure um, so that you don't have to hold it for a really long period of time if you don't have the capacity for it. So you asked some, I think, kind of rhetorical questions like, does it need to be covered and things like that? Maybe you can just answer those questions. 
Like, what is the ideal manure sort of storage and aging situation? Actually, New Hampshire Department of Agriculture, Markets, and Food has a best management practices manual on their website. That is a great reference for, um, you know, what's the ideal setup? Like, what is the best management practice for manure storage? Um, And, you know, ideally, you have a way to store the manure, whether it's concrete so that it blocks any kind of leachate from coming off the pile or you have some kind of cover over it. So it's not required that you have your manure pile be covered, um, but it is, you know, maybe a best management practice if you find that it does tend to leak some fluids after rainfall which is inevitable right it's manure and when it gets rained on it's gonna get squishy so um thinking about your placement of it too um you know there's i I can't remember exactly what it says in the BMPs, but you'll want to think about where your well is located, nearby water sources, bodies of water. Certainly, you don't want to be putting it anywhere. Um, You know, think about your neighbors, Um, you know, having your manure pile up front and facing your neighbor's house might not uh, go over very well. And, you know... And that kind of leads me to this will take us maybe down another rabbit hole, but um, just checking in with your town too. you know, what types of things a lot of towns are expanding their agricultural zoning and allowances um, in very uh, urban areas, too. So they might have special requirements in place based on the town for what you need to be doing based on what they actually allow in the town. Do you happen to know kind of the minimum requirements uh, that might exist just generally in the state? Or how, how might you think about that if you're not sure what your town does, but you do know that like, hey, regardless of what our town requires, there's at least these baseline requirements or guidance? Yeah, so it's interesting because New Hampshire doesn't necessarily regulate like manure management like say you know Vermont on the other hand you know they're doing a lot where there are regulations in place where you have to do proper nutrient management but here in New Hampshire we're not necessarily there yet but there are like those baseline um management practices like making sure your manure pile is gosh maybe Emma you remember it's either 50 or 75 feet from your well, maybe further. Um, But things like that and making sure that, you know, if you do have your manure pile that you have a way to like contain the manure. Um, But yeah, those would be some of the very base ones that I can think of off the top of my head. But I don't know, Emma, do you maybe have a couple? Ooh, off the top of my head, no. But the the whole manure conversation is absolutely something worth talking about. And I think something that people maybe aren't always really thinking about when you're planning to get livestock for your property, particularly if you have a, a small, more urban property. You might not be really thinking about all of the uh, the waste that you're going to have to deal with. And it's... Yeah. I mean, could be of great benefit to your garden. Um, 
or you know the some of the services you mentioned of actually needing to have manure hauled away you know might be something you need to consider too ideally before you bring anybody home um, and are adding any livestock to your property totally is it okay to have chickens walking through your garden and you know doing their their business or is that potentially a food safety issue or personal preference yeah interesting that you say that um there are some food safety concerns obviously chickens um can carry salmonella, E. coli, um, which is, you know, an issue for us if we come in contact with that, especially young kids. So the CDC um, came out with those guidelines a while back when, you know, the backyard chicken industry just exploded. Um, And they said, you know, if you have kids under five years old, don't you know, try to keep them away from your chickens, from your baby chicks. If they do touch them, don't let them touch their face or mouth before, you know, make sure they wash their hands first. So, um, yeah, there, there are some food safety concerns because, um, there's various zoonotic disease that, you know, or parasites that can be go be transferred between animals and humans. Um, so certainly with chickens, that's a great example, Nate, is ideally you have a way to fence your chickens out of your garden, not only because of the, the manure issue, but also because, you know, they'll be pretty destructive with it. Are there some livestock that are an exception to that where you actually can use fresh manure and there aren't food safety considerations or is that just true for livestock across the board? I think it's better to be safe than sorry <laughs> when it comes to dealing with poo. <laughs> I I feel like I've heard that it's okay to use like fresh rabbit manure that just but maybe that's more of something people say and not so much what we should do. Yeah, maybe. I honestly I don't know. I do know I've heard that um rabbit manure is like amazing for the gardens, like the cream of the crop. <laughs> well, the nice thing I imagine about rabbit manure is that there aren't going to be many weed seeds in it because you're probably feeding them some sort of pelletized diet. I mean, this could be true for other livestock too, but you have this nice source of nutrients and organic matter that isn't going to sprout any sort of weeds in your garden. Totally. Well, I'm glad you brought up the connection between diet and manure because I wanted to ask about that. So in terms of manure quality, how much is what those animals are eating playing into how useful that manure is? And if you are a landowner, you're not necessarily intensively managing the small pasture you have because maybe you think of it more as a field or something like that. It's not a commercial enterprise. What are some basics of what you should know about the types of plants that are out in that field that your animals are going to be grazing on and what are really good for them and what maybe is not so great for them? Hmm. That's a really good question. So as far as like manure quality goes for the gardens, you know, I don't know so much. <laughs> I, I don't know as much on the manure side and applying like that um, finished product to your plants. But from like the animal side of things, um, 
there so emma mentioned weed seeds it is pretty common that if you're not composting your um manure from your from your animals that you'll definitely get some weed seeds that pass right through and survive in the gut so that can be beneficial for um, if you're doing some managed grazing and you know that nutrient distribution in the field is excellent um, not only are you getting some nitrogen in there maybe you're getting some seed dispersal while you're at it um, but also it's you know a great way to sort of freely add nutrients back into your pasture system and you know if they're consuming if they have a grass-based diet if they're consuming grass and recycling it back onto the ground you know I can't think of anything that would be much much more beneficial than than that um, even if they have some grain in their diet you know I don't think you're gonna see too much like of a lesser quality manure product um, in that respect. Definitely. I, I think that there is a corollary with plant-based compost. I certainly would, to some extent, care about what was in the compost. Something, a compost that was just from leaves and grass clippings is going to be great, but maybe if it's even more diversified with kitchen scraps and and, and other things, maybe it's going to even pack more nutrients. Going, I mean, going to the other part of the question, just in terms of the quality of the forage, what plants are really good for animals and what plants maybe are more like empty calories. Is that, is that a real thing? I might just be projecting or anthropomorphizing. No, totally. So your monogastrics are your cattle, sheep, um, goats, and forages are going to be sort of their main diet. It's going to be the cheapest way to feed them. And some of those forages rise to the top and some of them are like what you said, empty calories. So um, forages that are really, really good. They're like sugar. They're delicious, high in protein. You've got your legumes, your clovers, um, bird's foot trefoil, alfalfa, those types of things. You've also got timothy. Um, you've got brome, um, ryegrass, uh, fescues. Uh, these are all things that, you know, people like to see in their pasture mixes. And, and of course, orchard grass, that's like a really common one you'll see in the field. So those are all a kind of diverse mix of forage species are what, that's what's going to give your livestock like a really good, um, gain, good calories, lots of protein, help them gain well um your empty calories are probably going to be some of those weed species so however not all of them because like i mentioned earlier there are some weed species that are pretty high in protein and like a good one to add into the mix um but Something like bed straw is a common weed you'll see in old hay fields. It'll creep into your pastures too. It really, unfortunately, it like it just has n very little nutritional value, and it, it's such a bummer because it's one of those weeds that like we see a lot, and we're like, oh, let's just graze it, and and they will eat it. It's just kind of like, like empty calories, <laughs> like you said. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, diet is a huge component of um, whether it's chickens, pigs, cows, um, what goes in is, is what you get out. So it's definitely a huge part of, of livestock name of the game. My favorite part of your answer is when you said 
And of course, Orchard Grass <gasps> sitting here over like, wow, you're giving me way too much credit. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Orchard Grass. It's so cute. Um, it's a nice, nice little forage. Everybody loves Orchard Grass. <laughs> I love me some Orchard Grass, but I had no idea it was an animal superfood. So very excited about that. Yeah. What type of soil conditions or growing conditions are going to be best for supporting all those good plants? Mm, yeah, so your soil uh, conditions, you're looking at kind of a more basic pH. So 6.5 and above 6.7 is typically where those forages like to lie in your in your soil range. So making sure you get soil tests done, um, at, just like with your gardening systems, if you're planning on providing forage to animals, um, that's definitely a, a good range for it to be in. Um, and, you know, obviously through our soil testing, um, you'll get those recommendations. And uh, oftentimes, I'm sure you guys have talked about soil on, on here a time or two, but you're going to see our soils are pretty acidic in New Hampshire. And, you know, I'm, I work a lot with folks that are purchasing new land and maybe doing some uh, land clearing to create pasture. So that's a, that's a huge first step is just getting your soil tested, um, in order to make sure your, your soil is where it needs to be before you, you decide to seed something. So to what extent are just like the plants in a regular home lawn good for animals? You know, home lawns, Emma, maybe you know the species in a home lawn better than I would, but so I'm pretty sure. I bet sure, she does. Yeah, I bet you, you do. What are they, Emma? Well, for like, what are the common ones? Then, for talking about you know, kind of your standard cool season turf grass lawn, which would represent most everything in New Hampshire, you'd be talking about things like fescues, probably tall and fine fescues, uh, perhaps some perennial ryegrass, Kentucky bluegrass. You might also have some white clover mixed in. A lot of people do. And if you haven't been real diligent with your lawn in terms of keeping it up, there's probably some crabgrass mixed in, hawkweed often mixed in, uh, maybe even some sheep sorrel. Cool. Yeah. Honestly, you know, a lot of those species are not, they're not bad for your lives. I mean, they will absolutely eat it. Kentucky bluegrass um, is a great... uh, forage species for horses because horses tend to graze down really low um just their grazing behavior with their front teeth they can really get close to the base and so kentucky bluegrass can handle um that constant mowing pressure hence why you probably see it in your in your lawns quite often so and i've been to to small farms where they you know they're absolutely grazing their sheep on their front lawn and i think it's really awesome because again what a great way to layer a system and you know add some nutrients into your lawn as long as you don't mind stepping on some landmines every now and then um, but yeah it's it's really you know a lot of those species are, are totally fine for your livestock as well well and don't mind me I'm just sitting here fantasizing about using the original horsepower to mow my lawn so I don't have to yeah wouldn't that absolutely. be nice absolutely <laughs> Yeah, and it all comes down comes down to management, though, for sure. You know, like we talked about earlier, any any system can kind of go south quickly if if you're not, um, you know, taking the time to 
maybe move those animals every once in a while. So the the folks that I have seen uh, doing some grazing on their front lawns, um, they maybe have their livestock there for a day and then they're moving them back to a holding area or something. I figure at least some people are listening to this and feeling like, wow, raising livestock and pasturing them sounds kind of complicated or maybe more complicated than you might think. So what do you recommend to folks who want to get into it or maybe are doing it, but not really knowing what they're doing? Like, what are those really good learning resources? Yeah, so good pasture management, strictly speaking on on pasture and forage management, um, some really great resources. If you're looking to dial it in and, and get that good carbon sequestration and improving soil health, um, I'd recommend looking into really any, you know, research-based resource uh, discussing managed intensive grazing. And so folks may have heard of Alan Savory. Um, he, you know, pioneered Holistic Management Institute and um, the Savory hubs around the country and has done a lot of work in Africa with um, converting deserts back into forage land. I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> Des- desertification, but undoing that basically um but anyway any resources discussing managed intensive grazing um you can get a ton of info on that and it can be as intense or as simple as as you want it to be it certainly doesn't have to be um overly complicated um but there are folks that are doing this for a living and so they do have to really dial it in because that's how they're you know finishing their animals so you really do break it down to a science but there's a lot of art behind it as well um which is a book it's called the art and science of grazing by sarah flack and it's a great book i have it not here but at home and it's a really great resource um even if you're just a beginner or if you're just really into managed grazing and learning more about it fabulous resource for sure i'm glad you brought up carbon sequestration so i'm wondering sort of acre per acre here in new hampshire northern new england what have you how do you think about pasturing ruminant livestock as a land use from a climate change perspective yeah whoo that's a good question nate just answer Um, that in like 30 seconds (laughs) okay here we go um no i i think again lots of research being done right now um there's a researcher in michigan michigan state that is looking at this very thing about carbon sequestration from grazing systems and actually UNH did a study a couple years ago about it and you know there is a lot of opportunity there to um, sequester carbon back into the soil in New Hampshire obviously we're mostly wooded we don't have a ton of pasture land um, but there's opportunity there and uh, there are a lot of folks partially driven by consumer demand for grass, grass-fed, grass-based products, but also just out of concern for our environment. And, um, you know, they, they see the results from more intensively managed grazing land um, just in the 
sheer massive forage that bumps up from that from you know we have these massive rainfall events and we see a lot of flooding these days so you know that could be attributed to some compactions and soil like a lot of compacted soils and just the loss of pasture land that we once had too so um you know using the land that we do have and and doing some good management systems and it's it's not just through grazing we you know in new hampshire there's no till a lot of folks doing that um these are our systems though that can help catch that rainfall and and we have the ability to sequester and like infiltrate the water um a lot better than you know what we're seeing now is a lot of flooding so if we can use these systems and sort of buffer that soil and and build the water holding capacity hopefully you know we can just keep building on that and keep sequestering it and in addition you know it does help sequester carbon as well just thinking thinking of pastures as like obviously different from forest land but kind of the same because that grass they are little solar panels and they are taking carbon in from from the air so and putting it back into the soil um but yeah it's really quite fascinating what some of this stuff can do for the land i don't think that was 30 seconds (laughs) one i know you could keep going i'm just thinking though about the fact that grasslands with these warm season grasses that have really deep roots and are doing all this great stuff for the environment. If you don't mow that at all, woody plants are going to grow in and that's going to revert to something other than pasture. So you have two options, right? You can either mow it with some gas powered mowing implement, or you can have animals out there. Well, I I suppose you can be out there with a scythe or something like have have done that it's a good time but (laughs) there are different options but like if you want to keep something as pasture as grassland you have to do mowing whether it's you or the animals you're raising totally yeah and you know again there's a lot of folks that are are buying up you know buying new properties coming into new hampshire welcome um but you know if folks have land that's open and you know, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, farmers are always looking for a land base, um, to expand their operations. A lot of them are willing to lease, um, and, you know, or hay it even. So, um, just knowing that that option is available too, if you're not looking to get your own livestock, um, you might be able to have somebody else bring them onto your property if it's, you know, worthwhile for them and you. So can you just say a tiny bit more about how someone might look into that? Yeah. You know, I have received some emails from folks saying, hey, I've got land if anybody's interested. So I guess just reaching out to your county extension agent, if that's something that you have available, you know, we would probably know who might be looking for land or where to point to. Um, There's also Land for Good, which is more, well, I think they do leasing too, but they are in the business of connecting farmers and landowners to land. Um, So people selling land, people looking to buy land. So that's a really great service that we have in New Hampshire. Um, That's basically just about land access and land sourcing from one person to the next and keeping it in agriculture production. I love that. My understanding is historically 
we have quite a bit of forest right now compared to, I don't know, 100 years ago, something like that. What's your perspective on sort of our changing landscape and how animals fit into that? Yeah, um, it's funny. My husband's a forester, so we our worlds collide when the woods come in and the agriculture comes in. But wait, um, do you feel like you're like on the same team? Yeah. Or are you sometimes at odds? Like, what's that like? No, honestly, I, I do feel like we're on the same team a lot because um, we both we both care about land and and what the land can do for us and what we can do for the land. So it's really kind of a nice harmony together. And of course, um, yeah, so we, we do have a lot of woodland and um, which is great. I think it's a really critical characteristic of New Hampshire is our woodlands. Um, but also, you know, there is opportunity to, again, I keep saying layer, um, but layering livestock systems into woodlands and uh, you have to be really careful with that because having animals in the woods can do quite a bit of damage um, if you're not managing it properly. But um, things like silvopasture are sort of coming. Well, that's been around for a long time, and, and there's a lot of folks that um, do silvopasture. Um, there was some research that did come out of UNH, and I believe in partnership with Cornell, maybe UVM was involved too, but. Basically, you know, they they define silvopasture as having three agricultural product or not agricultural, but land products in one system. So silvopasture is when you are managing a woodlot and trying to get a, a harvest from the trees. You're managing a a pasture system within that woodlot so you're managing forage production and then you're also adding in animals so then you're managing for animal production so in a true silvopasture system you're seeing these three products being raised together in harmony without detrimenting one system so oftentimes what can happen and there's certainly nothing wrong with this but you know I always tell new landowners like if you want to have livestock in your in your woods I think it's great it's great quality of life for the livestock um and and it's a really cool system to have but just know if you're not careful those trees can get pretty damaged and you might not see that damage for 10 years down the road or longer. Um, So just that trampling, a lot of those tree root systems are pretty shallow. So having large animals in there can, can do quite a bit of damage. So you just have to be careful in those systems. But again, if your goal, if it's like a a low producing kind of low value woodlot, um, you know, you're not really looking to make income off of those trees. It's certainly a good opportunity to have a little wiggle room and, and have livestock in there. Just recognize that those trees might potentially, you might see some dieback in the next several years. Okay, so I had to do some digging on agroforestry after we stopped recording, and I'm glad I did. So for one thing, there are some kind of nesting terms here. Silvopasture, for example, is one practice associated with agroforestry. But there are others, and all of them combine agricultural and forestry practices to improve environmental quality, production, and economic returns for landowners. 
Practicing agroforestry could mean constructing windbreaks with trees and shrubs for fields, farmsteads, and livestock. And then specifically for us going into silvopasture, there are a ton of great resources to support landowners who want to integrate trees, forage crops, and grazing livestock into one system. I could spend all day looking into it, but that day is unfortunately not today. So let's jump back into our conversation. Emma, I've been hogging the mic. What questions do you have for Elena? Well, I know a question that has often come up in my experience with extension is what sort of housing is required for livestock that you're bringing onto your property? You know, be it be it chickens, be it goats, a horse. What kind of light can you shed on that, Elena? Totally. Yeah. So again, going to throw another reference out there, but we have the housing um, and space guidelines for livestock on our website, UNH Extension. We kind of map out the like space requirements and ideal conditions and, you know, the recommended boundary setbacks there. I actually have it open on my computer right now, but um, from horse to chickens, it's all going to be a little different. Um, I'll start with your chickens, obviously, and, and any, you know, kind of poultry species, everything loves to eat chicken. So having some kind of actual enclosed coop structure fencing is really important um that's something you'll definitely need for for chickens um just to keep them safe from predators and they don't become a snack um and to also keep them contained as well because you know another thing good fences make good neighbors that's something you need for all livestock species across the board gotta have good fencing so i that's like the bare minimum infrastructure that you need housing i guess you could loop it into that um when you get into sheep cows um they or goats, even a horse, actually, surprisingly, if you're just doing, you know, for for meat production, things get a little more complicated when you you have you do dairy production because then you need sort of a, a birthing uh, setup for calving, lambing, kidding. But if you're just doing meat production, um, you know, the bare minimum for a structure, especially in the winter would be a three-sided shelter. Uh, you don't necessarily need a, them to go into a, a button-up enclosed barn um, unless, you know, if horses, if they can't get into the shelter for whatever reason, you might need to have a space to bring them in. But a lot of these livestock are, are pretty good at regulating their own temperature and they, they do pretty well in the winter. Um, the, the biggest threats to them are going to be extreme heats and extreme wet, cold, and wind. So having a three-sided structure that is south-facing, making sure it has adequate dimensions to fit everybody in there, and again, that's on our housing and space guidelines, um, that, that'll be really important just to provide them with shade, a place to stay dry, and get out of the wind. And do you make them go inside on that wettest, coldest day in the winter? <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes they have their own ideas and, and they don't go in the structure. Um, 
most of the times, you know, I've seen they will. Even if you have like a wooded area, that could be a real nice buffer or a windrow or something for the animals to hunker up against and be fine. Um, you know, you can certainly close them in there, but um, typically, you know, they're they're pretty smart and they're going to know what they need. But it's always good to keep a close watch on them, especially if you have a younger species or a younger, a younger animal, I guess species across the board. If they're a bit younger, naive, don't really know what they're doing, and you see them kind of shivering out there, standing in the middle of the pasture, might be a good idea to have some kind of backup situation where you can bring them in and get them warmed up. And I have one more question for you, Elena, just because I think it's something that the beginner livestock owner doesn't think about. What sort of advice do you give to people when it comes to processing, you know, where are you going to go? Is this something that you should expect to do yourself? Um, are there places people can take maybe just two pigs or a half a dozen chickens? Yeah, this is my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's morbid, but I love it because it's this is the the part where we're, we're all waiting for, right? This is why we raise meat uh, meat producing livestock species. So. Um, yeah, processing, uh, just plain and simple, is a challenge in New England across the board. You know, we do have um, and have had a bottleneck in our processing facilities. So we have four in New Hampshire, four USDA processing facilities. And you can call ahead and book dates to these facilities. You drive your animals there, drop them off, and then pick them up when they're ready. The challenge here is that there is so many people that are doing this for a living, for, you know, for fun, as a hobby, um, etc., um, that we see a huge surge in the fall months because a lot of people don't want to keep their animals through the winter. It's expensive to feed them through the winter. So because of that, that bottleneck in the fall months, um, you have to book your dates for a processing facility almost a year ahead of time, depending on the facility. Now, with those USDA facilities in New Hampshire, um, you only have to go to a USDA facility if you are looking to sell your animal afterwards or sell like cuts of meat out of a farm stand or to the farmer's market or to your neighbors. Um, in order to sell that product, you have to go to a USDA facility. So the good news is you aren't limited to just those four in New Hampshire. You could go to Maine. You could go to Massachusetts. You could go to Vermont. You could go to New York if you wanted to drive that far for a couple of animals. But um, that's the good news is you're not limited to just the few in New Hampshire that we have. Um, you can take that out of state. If you are not looking to sell cuts afterwards, you have the option to use a custom processor. And so that processor, um, they you know, would process your animal for you. The only difference is that there's not a USDA inspector on site to give it the stamp of approval that, yeah, you can sell this after it's been processed. Um, so we, we have a few custom processors. They're a little bit harder to find. Um, we do have um, some some contacts, but it's certainly not a comprehensive list. So if you're a custom processor, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, you can, yeah, you can go through a custom processor and, and some of them are mobile. Some of them will come to you to process your animal or you might have to drive to them to get it done. Um, and then you asked about doing it yourself. Absolutely. I mean, you chickens are, are fairly easy. It's labor intensive, but it's one of the easier ones to do yourself. But I would not recommend doing it um, just just for anybody to just process their animals. It, it does require quite a bit of skill, know-how. You want to make sure you're doing it humanely um, and, and making sure that that animal is, um, you know, comfortable, happy, and it's done right. So it definitely requires some skill and and depending on where you are and what kind of housing situation you have you might not even be able to necessarily process in your backyard um again that's where it's super important to check in with your zoning um ordinances in your town just to see um what you can and can't do in terms of livestock production so I know processing is one bottleneck and at least for certain types of livestock and I guess for me and what's coming to mind are backyard poultry, but veterinary care is another bottleneck of mostly I think for the backyard livestock uh, situation, right? That Our commercial producers, I assume, are in pretty good shape in terms of getting the veterinary care they need, but what suggestions do you give to folks either considering getting backyard livestock or already have them, but maybe haven't lined up veterinary care in case something does happen? Yeah. So the first thing I always recommend to anybody, you know, commercial or not, you really have to develop a veterinary client patient relationship. Um, your veterinarian is really one of your first defenses against um, illness and, and they're going to help you come up with a plan to prevent illness in your flock or herd. Um, so it's it's really critical. And, and like you said, Nate, it is hard, especially on the chicken side of things, to find um, a veterinarian that will come to you and um, help you with your backyard chicken flock. Uh, we definitely run into a lot of phone calls, asking health questions, and it's, it's hard because we can't necessarily answer or direct people to um, particular drugs or, or stuff like that without a professional diagnosis by a veterinarian. Um, we're really lucky that in New Hampshire we have a diagnostic lab in Durham, the New Hampshire Vet Diagnostic Lab, where you can send fecal samples for parasite um, fecal egg counts. Um, you can send, if you have a, a poultry um, a chicken die, you can send your chicken for necropsy to figure out what the cause of death was and hopefully get some answers that way. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, no matter what kind of livestock you're producing, even if it's, if it's just one sheep or one goat, um, definitely, you know, do, do your research and look up your closest veterinarian office and, and see what they can offer you. And, um, usually they're, they're pretty good about helping and, um, finding other folks as well, hopefully. So yeah, that number one, find a veterinarian if you can in your area. And I guess to go back to something Emma asked about, which is processing, 
And you said how passionate you are about the subject. And I know it's not just something you're passionate about in your work, but it's also something that you've actually been focusing on in your education too. Can you tell us a little bit about your master's program and what you're focusing on and what insights maybe you've gleaned and want to share? Sure. So I'm working on my master's in agricultural science at UNH. Um, and I'm just starting to really dig into the research portion. But basically what I'm looking at um, is, you know, what are those processing constraints for beef producers specifically in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont? Um, so I did some preliminary research just asking that general question, not even specific to processing, like what are the biggest constraints um, to allowing beef producers to expand in northern New England. And of course, the thing that rose to the top was processing, which wasn't a surprise. But um, And then the other thing was land access, which was really interesting. So folks, you know, those are those two biggest constraints. They, they can't expand the business because they just don't have the access to land and they can't get their products produced at, in, in the way or at the rate that they necessarily want them to because processors are just so maxed out right now. So um, the next part now, so that was my preliminary data, um, I'm going to be digging into sort of what are some solutions, what are some opportunities um, here to looking at that stuff? You know, is it a matter of... Um, doing more collaborative work between commercial beef producers, land access, you know, is there a way to um, collaborate together and utilize the land that we have in New Hampshire to benefit the whole? Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to dig more into it. It's I'm actually was working on my thesis proposal earlier today, so um, it, it's been really fascinating, um, you know, again, not surprising, but since the COVID-19 pandemic, we did see a huge surge in folks wanting to raise their own livestock, which is great. It's exciting, um, to see that interest and, and desire to go back to raising your own products. But, um, it also put a big strain on our, um, processing facilities even more so than than before the pandemic so where the bottleneck you know they might be operating at 100 percent capacity in the fall months they were operating at 100 percent year round um, which is typically um, unusual for processing facilities so I'm, I'm sure that's slowed down a little bit as we are sort of getting somewhat back into normalcy but um, it definitely raised this issue to the top of a lot of people's um, lists of, of to-dos. And um, so there's a lot of conversations happening around it. And it's been interesting, for sure. Well, some of those issues have been covered in pretty mainstream media outlets. You know, I know I've seen pieces in the Concord Monitor and Union Leader and other major, you know, statewide uh, papers talking about some of these processing issues and it's great that you're focusing on such a is on such a need. Not everyone's master's work focuses on something that very many people care about or or issues that really affect a lot of people. So that's really cool. I I was actually wondering you said that the COVID pandemic there's been a bunch of increased interest in raising your own livestock. 
what are the trends around interest and demand in local meat products? Yeah, so um, very much related. Um, our producers last year, um, due to the pandemic, their sales went crazy. And again, this is just speaking to beef producers from my preliminary data, but anecdotally, we can pretty much infer the same um, across the board for for meat producers. Um, you know, people started seeing grocery stores um, not have any product on the shelves, meat product. So folks really relied on their local pork, beef, chicken, sheep, you name it, um, producer to provide them with their, their meat needs for the year. And so that was really great. Um, but the beef producers I interviewed, they were like, oh my gosh, like at first we were like, this is amazing. We're selling so much product. And then their freezers emptied and they were like, wow, we're not even halfway through summer yet. And we just sold all of our product. So it was a good thing. But it was also kind of like, well, now now what? Because they need more product. And it, it for beef animals, it takes, you know, almost two years to finish a grass-fed animal. Um, maybe a little less um, than that. But it's a substantial amount of time before you can get to that finished product. So um, I think we, you know, there was um, – some reports from the beef quality assurance and beef checkoff saying there was a huge surge in consumer interest in beef products in general. Um, but at a local scale, yeah, we, I think we saw a lot of consumers demanding that local product and I hope it stays that way. Um, hopefully they got a taste for it and are, are jazzed about it. And if they did it themselves, you know, kudos because hopefully it, it worked out for them as well. But, you know, if folks didn't do it for themselves, there are certainly producers out there that can fill your freezer for you too. Well, and the more I learn about livestock, whether it's from you or, or other folks, is it, it just makes me a lot more appreciative of our local commercial producers and happy to happy to pay them for their excellent products. So certainly glad that folks like you are out there supporting the commercial industry so they can have plenty of product for all the hopefully increasing demand. Totally. It's, yeah, it's fun to be able to help them as well and see the growth. It's exciting for sure. All right. Any closing thoughts from you two? I'd say just do your research and uh, know that if you have a little chunk of land in New Hampshire, that's pretty level, not right on a pond or lake. Livestock could very much be in your future. Well said, Emma. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, don't be, um, if, if livestock is something you're excited about, um, adding it into your system, don't be afraid of it, but definitely do your research and check in with, uh, you know, the folks that you need to check in with, with your town and, um, your neighbors. And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for it and there has been over the past several years. So, I certainly love seeing it, and um, it's definitely an important part of our rural character of New Hampshire, so good stuff. The featured plant this episode is Jimson weed, Datura stramonium. Jimson weed is a member of the nightshade family, Solanaceae, and unlike its cousins, the tomato and eggplant, 
Jimsonweed is poisonous to people and livestock. It's found growing throughout much of New Hampshire, even though it's actually native to South America. Growing as an annual, the plant flowers and sets seeds, producing a new crop of plants the following season. Jimsonweed is a large-statured plant that's difficult to miss in the landscape because it grows three to five feet tall with thick stems that are green or purple. The alternate leaves are up to eight inches long and six inches across, with large lobes along the margins. The flowers are particularly striking, funnel-shaped and five inches long and two inches across, and usually a pale violet or white color. The flowers give way to large, spiny seed pods, which give jimsonweed its other common name of thorn apple. It's good to be able to recognize jimsonweed, especially if you keep livestock, because it is toxic. Keep an eye out for this plant in your pastures and take a moment to enjoy its unusual beauty before you yank it out by the roots. Well, among other things, we spent a lot of time chatting about manure today. Not unusual for extension folks, as those of you who've listened to the podcast have gathered at this point, but worth acknowledging. And also, it's a great segue to me talking about an in-person event we've organized on, you guessed it, manure. I've got a link for you in the show notes, but it's on Saturday, September 25th in Durham, New Hampshire, and is on using manure in your garden. There'll be hands-on learning and lots of demonstration, and I simply can't wait. I'll definitely be there. Space is limited, so be sure to look into registering sooner rather than later. And in addition to that link, we've got a bunch of other resources we've referenced throughout our conversation, all conveniently linked for you. Okay, lastly, I'll say that we're going to get into some great gardening topics coming up. We're talking about trees, invasive plants, cover cropping, transplanting shrubs and perennials, putting the garden to bed and preparing for winter, countless other timely topics we've heard from you that you want us to cover. So stick with us and share the Granite State Gardening Podcast with all your fellow gardeners. All right, as I say farewell, send photos of your adorable chickens and other backyard animals and we'll talk with you soon. Granite State Gardeners and Homesteaders, thanks for listening. State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.